tonight on The Readout. Some people say, well, they're soft on crime. No, they're not soft on crime. They're pro-crime. They want crime. They want crime because they want to take over what you got. They want to control what you have. They want reparation because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. Bull They are not owed that. It's October, and after a weekend of blatantly racist remarks from the right, we know it's that scary time of year. It's met by complete silence from Republican leadership, who surprisingly are in allegiance with most of these comments. Also tonight, Russia unleashes a new round of airstrikes against Ukrainian civilians, the latest act of brutality from an increasingly desperate losing Vladimir Putin. Plus, Trump's lawyers meet with federal investigators as Trump again says the documents are, quote, mine. And the fallout today from racial slurs caught on tape from L.A. City Council President, who as of right now is the former L.A. City Council President. Good evening, everyone. I'm Jason Johnson. And tonight for Joy Reid, we begin the readout tonight with the shamelessly unapologetic and blatant racism and xenophobia that was on full display this weekend. Not surprisingly. Uh, because, look, the twice-impeached former president is doing a traveling roadshow around the country, and most of the offensive commentary seemed to follow him like, you know, rats to garbage. First, it was Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville's casually racist claim that all black people are criminals, which was cheered by the crowd and got little pushback from Republicans who refused to condemn his comments. Nebraska Republican Congressman Don Bacon suggested that Tuberville should have been more polite with his racism. Makes you wonder what kind of coach he was. Then the next day, not to be outdone, Georgia's Congresswoman said, hold my racist beer and joined in on the racism, targeting immigrants. Joe Biden's five million illegal aliens are on the verge of replacing you replacing your jobs and replacing your kids in school and coming from all over the world, they're also replacing your culture. And that's not great for America. Yes, stairs in Indigenous Peoples Day. If you want to talk about replacement, Marjorie Taylor Greene, or anyone else who's complaining for that matter, you might want to take a different look at how you're thinking about these things today. Given the fact that, you know, the entire culture of Native Americans was destroyed so that you could stand there and complain about the next group of people who are supposedly coming in. And even though Marjorie Taylor Greene isn't running for office in Arizona, her presence at the rally shows just how key her ideology is to the current form of the Republican organization. Blake Masters and Carrie Lake, who actually are on the ballot in Arizona, have parroted similar talking points, claiming that Democrats want an invasion to remake the country's demographics so they can maintain power. That rhetoric is popular with a number of mass murderers who have targeted black and brown communities in Texas and New York. And while it's popular with the extremist base, it remains repugnant to most normal thinking Americans who care about gas prices and health care and abortion rights. One independent voter in Arizona recently told The New York Times, quote, I see the racism. If you are Hispanic, if you are of a different color, it does not sit well with me. Clearly, they have a sixth sense. They see racism. On the same day that Trump was campaigning for Carrie Lake, her Democratic opponent for Governor Katie Hobbs was holding an event at the Barry Goldwater Memorial Park. Yeah, that iconic Arizona Republican with a coalition of Republicans who support her candidacy. And in Colorado, a recent poll showed that Adam Frisch, a Democrat running to unseat Lauren Boebert, is statistically tied. Unaffiliated voters seem to be repulsed by Boebert's rhetoric. At this moment in Cleveland, Ohio, Congressman Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance are facing off in their first debate. 
Vance has spent the past few months trying to prove that he is true MAGA and not just a poser running for office by telling women that they should remain in violent marriages and enlisting Marjorie Taylor Greene on the campaign trail. While he was busy doing that, Tim Ryan was left to campaign across the state and talk about actual issues that matter to people in Ohio. Independent polls suggest the race is a toss-up 30 days out. Joining me now to discuss all of this is Democratic strategist Stephanie Brown-James and Sir Michael Singleton, former Republican political consultant, host of Screen Share on Peacock. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me this evening. Look, Sir Michael, I'm not going to ask you the traditional question of, hey, Sir Michael, you're an African-American Republican. Tell me why so many people in your party are so <laughs> racist, because we already know the answer to that one, right? What I'm going to ask you is this. In our current political environment, is that effective? Is the kind of a ra uh, a racism that you hear from Tuberville, is the kind of racism you hear from Marjorie Taylor Greene, is that effective with anybody other than hardcore MAGA voters? Because it would seem to me that if I'm an independent voter who's not motivated by just anger, I want to hear about gas prices. I want to hear about health care. I want to hear about student loans. I don't care how much you hate immigrants. Yeah, Doc, that's a really good question. And I think looking at how close the midterms are, I think it is effective with some people in this country who identify as independents or swing voters. I would even go as far to say that there are even individuals of color um, who may identify as white leaning and that may also identify with some of this, some of this rhetoric, as crazy as that may seem. But you would think, Doc, when you listen to rhetoric like that, that Democrats would have a significant advantage. And we're looking at 46, 47% difference, right, within margin of error. Republicans need to gain five seats in the House to regain it. They need just one seat in the Senate to take it back. These aren't significant margins. And so you have to ask yourself, it clearly isn't just, quote unquote, MAGA Republicans who are saying, you know, I'm going to vote Republican. There are clearly some other folks in our country who are overlooking these things, Doc, for, for other reasons, which in my opinion is just as bad as people who are saying, I support this because I agree with it. Well, that's true. I mean, if you've got anybody out there right now who's like, I'm OK with the racism as long as you lower my gas prices, probably not the kind of person I'd want as a neighbor. Uh, Stephanie Brown, James, you are a co-founder of Collective PAC, uh, which is an organization that goes out and raises money, uh, helps many minority candidates run for office. One of the reasons I want to have you here is because when you're facing this kind of rhetoric, obviously part of the strategy is your candidate has to go out and deliver a message. But the other thing that you have to do is somehow get those people who may be, as Sir Michael suggests, somewhat motivated by this rhetoric to think not in terms of cultural animus, but practical bread and butter issues. What are some of the things that you hear effective Democratic candidates saying right now when they're up against that kind of racism? Well, it's exactly the, the point that you raised, Jason, and that and that is that we have to focus on the issues. Uh, we talk to our candidates all the time and we focus on black candidates that are running on a local, state and federal level to let them know, listen, it is about the everyday experience of your neighbors, of your constituents. You have to focus on the issues, which also means um, that it's important to keep your ear to the ground and, and, and make sure that, you know, you're not shying away from some of these cultural racist situations that are happening, which oftentimes are actually targeted towards black candidates. Um, but you have to make the voters realize that there is a clear choice when it be, when it comes between you and what your opponent is standing for. And unfortunately, we're seeing too many times, you know, right now we have um, um, a candidate that's running against Marjorie Taylor Greene um, and we let them know, show the stark differences. Um, if people want a racist individual representing them, saying that that is the values that, that they uphold, then they should vote that way. But if not, 
you need to vote my way because I'm in focus on the issues and I'm focused on making the country move forward and not move back, which is exactly what so many of these um, individuals who you saw uh, on these videos are trying to do. They want us to go back so bad that they will use the same old racist, higher language and tropes uh, to get folks thinking uh, back 100 years and now how we can move forward um, together. Now, Stephanie, I have some slight pushback on this because at a practical level, racism is a policy position. It is. If I'm running and saying I don't like black people and brown people, what I am saying is that I will promote policies that will harm those people and I will promote policies that I guess in theory help you over them. The racism just happens to be a shortcut. So how do you convince a, a, a white voter? I mean, let's just be absolutely real about this. How do you convince a white voter if one person is saying, hey, I've got policies that help all of Americans are going to replace hospitals in Georgia. We're, uh, we're going to improve roads in North Carolina. And the other person saying, I'm going to make sure that you get all that stuff and they don't. How do you combat that? Or is that simply not something you can do realistically with 30 days left in a campaign? Well, the, the most important thing is to not shy away from it. You know, it's important that we are calling out um, these racist candidates and the, the ads and the companies that that support these efforts. Um, that we call them out. Um, But at the same time, you know, listen, this is what unfortunately a lot of us are used to seeing. This is the same Republican tire strategy that they always use when they know that they can't relate to voters. But I can tell you that most, you know, you have a lot of independent voters. You have a lot of white voters that do not want to be put in the same bucket as uh, racist individuals like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, And you have to be able to call it out and say, listen, this person is going to advance policies that not only will take back people of color, but guess what? Especially if you're a white woman, many of these policies will impact you. If you are a person who was in the lower middle class economic structure, it's going to impact you. And that is a number of Americans um, who will actually be impacted um, by these policies that are not going to actually benefit white people in the way that these folks are saying that that they will, but will actually harm them. So we can't shy away from the facts and and telling that story. I mean, we encourage our candidates to stand strong, but also to make sure that they don't lose their message in the process as well. Sure, Michael. So right now we've got word that uh, Rick Scott and Tom Cotton are going to go down and campaign for Herschel Walker. It's, it's a rumor that he's having a Halloween party where he's dressed as Nick Cannon. We don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but Herschel has been trying to reframe his image over the last couple of hours or days after the latest revelation that he has not only been a bad parent and absentee parent, uh, but also has paid for at least one abortion uh, with someone that he used to be romantically involved with. My question for you is, Does bringing down these kinds of Republicans actually do anything for Herschel Walker? Look, if I'm not a hardcore conservative, I don't know who Tim Cotton is, right? I mean, he he looks like Mm -hmm. Lemony Snicket. He's just kind of a skinny guy. I I don't know him. He wouldn't galvanize me. Are these the kinds of things that are actually going to help Herschel Walker? Or is it just a sign from the Republican Party as a whole saying, hey, we've got your back, even if you're in a losing campaign? Well, I think the concern from Herschel Walker's uh, campaign, Doc, and I don't have any inside information here, is that he is probably isolating some part of ultra-Christian conservative Republicans in Georgia. And so Tom Cotton, to those individuals who's an uber-conservative person, he talks a lot about his Christian faith, that is someone, if he were to come down and campaign with Herschel Walker, talk about Herschel Walker being the good person, the right person for Georgia, someone that they need to add to the Senate, will be perceived as, I'm endorsing him. If Herschel is okay with me, He should therefore be okay with you. Just to break this down politically for the viewers to understand the reasons why. 
With that said, though, Doc, I think that they're recognizing that they're potentially isolating a lot of independent women, a lot of suburbanites. And that's a, a base that Republicans that even Mitch McConnell a couple of months ago acknowledged that Republicans want to win those voters back. It's also why Mitch McConnell said, I don't like some of the Republican candidates that have been selected because I think we may not win back the majority in the Senate because of some of those types of candidates. And so looking at that, to me, tells me that the internals of the campaign are saying, holy smoke, this revelation is damaging. This could cause us the election. We need people to come down to sort of sanction, bless Herschel Walker, no pun intended, to say that, hey, he is still okay with conservative Republicans. And if I could add really, really quickly, Doc, something Stephanie said about white women in general, right? I have always wondered this, and, and I don't mean to offend anyone by saying this. I've always wondered if some individuals, even if they don't necessarily identify where to sanction every single thing that extremist individuals may say, if they view themselves as being a part of said group or to, as it pertains to black people versus the other group, I think many of these people will say, you know what, if it benefits me versus those people, I'm going to side with the other side, even if they don't publicly acknowledge it. And so what I'm trying to say, Doc, is that whiteness, even some Hispanics that identify as white, will more than likely side with others versus siding with black people. And this is not my opinion. This is something that has historically gone on in this country for a very, very long time. And it's also why, as a former Republican, I became an independent because the racial stuff is a line that I can't, I, you can't defend that stuff. You, you right. can't defend it. You can try to fight and say the party needs to be better. Black people do deserve an opportunity to look at two healthy parties and talk about economics and, and, and other policy issues. But the reality is most people in our community don't view that. And so for me, right. as a former Republican, I can just come to a point and say, you know what? I can't be with this stuff. I wish you guys the best, but man, you can't have me go to my community and say that this is okay because I don't sanction. I have to say this really quick, <laughs> sure, Michael. I, I apologize for calling you a Republican earlier. Uh, I owe you a drink okay, for that. Guy. My mistake. <laughs> 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 Thank you so much, Stephanie Brown-James and Shermichael Singleton for starting off the show with us today. Thanks, Doc. Up, up next on The Readout, a new round of Russian brutality against the people of Ukraine. Putin's army is failing, so he's relying on deadly missile attacks. The Readout continues with this discussion after this. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. After months of a war in Ukraine that's going very badly for Putin, Russia unleashed a wave of airstrikes on Ukrainian cities today, including the capital, Kiev, directly hitting civilians and infrastructure. Ukrainian officials say 14 people were killed and 97 were injured. 
under the blast in Kyiv almost hit the city's iconic glass bridge while a pedestrian was walking across it, as well as a playground in the city. Putin said today the attacks were retaliation for what he called Ukraine's terrorist acts, including the partial destruction of the only bridge connecting Russia to Crimea, which Putin illegally annexed from Ukraine in 2024 or 2014. It's a bridge so important to Putin that he held an official ceremony featuring him driving across it, boasting at the time that, quote, even during the reign of the czars, people dreamed of building this bridge. And now he has once again illegally annexed territories in Ukraine. Today, the U.N. began an emergency session to debate condemning that annexation. NBC's Cal Perry has the latest from Kiev. The first rockets landing here in the capital at 8.15 in the morning at the height of rush hour. This is a city that was on its way back in many ways. People coming back to this city, but that calm destroyed in an instant. That was the first volley of fire. There were two more in just the capital alone, at least eight people dead here with another dozen or so wounded, according to emergency services, though those numbers could easily rise. These were attacks across the country, not just in the capital city. To the east, in the city of Kharkiv, five explosions taking place around the same time, 8.30 in the morning. In the center of the country, the vitally important city of Rivni, at least five people dead there, another dozen or so wounded. And to the far western part of the country, the city of Lviv, which has managed to stay really out of the line of fire, hit by a volley of rockets. We understand that it was electricity targets being hit there. The power was out for some time today. And in the capital city tonight, things are tense. People have taken shelter. They're taking cover wherever they can, including in the subways underneath the city. The mayor here says there will be rolling blackouts. The electricity grid was really brought to its knees by these attacks, so these rolling blackouts will try to prevent a larger crash of the electricity grid. The lights behind me are off, not just to save that grid, but in the hopes that there won't be further strikes in the coming hours. Sobering and sad. Thank you, Cal Perry. Joining me now is former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall, an MSNBC international affairs analyst. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Ambassador. This is this is the first thing that gets me. Um, you know, this isn't asymmetric warfare. So Putin calling the defense of one's own homeland, Putin calling the Ukrainian terrorists doesn't seem to make any sense. But I'm curious Who is that rhetoric for? Is it for international arms dealers that want to supply Russia? Is it to appease uh, populist and right-wing people on Russian television? Because I I don't think anybody's definition on the far left or the far right could say that what Ukraine is doing is terrorism, right? Great question. Uh, Most certainly it's not terrorism as far as I'm concerned. I'm not an international lawyer. I want to be clear about that. But the attack on the bridge was to stop a critical supply line to soldiers moving up through Crimea to fight around Kherson. That's a target. By the way, they targeted during a time when the least amount of traffic was there, right? So they were, it seems to me, whoever did it, and we don't know who did it, were going out of their way not to target civilians. What Putin did in response was exactly to target civilians. All of those, that photograph that you just showed, that that map, all those cities were civilian targets. That is the definition of terrorism, targeting civilians to terrorize people is the exact opposite. To your question of who is it for, it's definitely for the Russian uh, population. It's for a domestic audience. It's to give him an excuse 
to double down, to mobilize forces that is proving to be rather unpopular inside Russia. He's saying we need to protect the home line from these quote unquote terrorist attacks by first launching all these missiles and second by sending more soldiers into into uh, uh, all parts of Ukraine. Ambassador, you know, one of the things that that strikes me about this recent volley is also the symbolism. So we hear the rhetoric from Vladimir Putin. Ah, it's terrorism. This is why I have to do it. But the symbolism of 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 taking out that bridge. This is a bridge that he once walked across. This is a bridge that he bragged about. This this would be the equivalent of of, you know, attacking you know, Delaware or something else like that, like something that is personally linked and associated with the president. At this point, could we argue that what Putin did in retaliation was personal, Uh, that this was not necessarily strategic attacks, but it was a personal attack because he now feels that the war has come to his symbolic doorstep? Exactly. It's all personal and has nothing to do with strategy. Uh, By the way, the attack took place on his 70th birthday, right? So he took that as a personal thing. But I think that's a metaphor for the larger war. Remember, Ukraine wasn't threatening Russia. Uh, There was no threat to Russia. This talk about NATO expansion was not real. This is a personal war because Putin believes that Ukrainians should be part of the Russian empire. They're just, you know, Russians with accents, as he said before he invaded. This is a personal, uh, completely personalized war. Um, And tragically, for the Ukrainian people, they've had to endure that. But now that he's losing, it makes it all the more difficult for him because it's all about Putin's personality, his ego, and has nothing to do with actual Russian security objectives. Ambassador, I think this is key because when you talk about what 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 his motivation was, Vladimir Putin has been very clear. This is imperialism. I just want to get these territories back because I want to make sure I create this greater Russia. A lot of the domestic American sort of far left and even the international left has said, no, no, no. Putin was provoked into this action that the United States is is propping up Ukraine to fight some sort of proxy war, that there are tons of of diplomatic solutions out there and that the United States is preventing those things from occurring. When you see actions like this from Vladimir Putin, does this bring us any closer to a supposed diplomatic solution? Because it seems to me that if this has gotten into a personal uh, spinning match between Zelensky and Vladimir Putin, I don't see any diplomatic solutions on the table anytime soon. It's very hard to see. I agree. And that's what makes this moment so tragic. Uh, My assessment, I talk to Ukrainian officials pretty regularly. I had two calls canceled today, uh, by the way, Zoom calls, because people were without electricity. Um, But when I talk to Ukrainian officials, I think they're ready to negotiate some kind of terms. They want this war to end. After all, their people are dying every single day. But it's also very clear Putin does not want to negotiate. This is a war of imperialism. I mean, think about it. If after decolonization in Africa, the French or the British or the Portuguese came back 30 years later and say, you know, we're just kidding about Angola for Portugal. We're just kidding about Algeria for the French, Uh, the British saying we want to take Nigeria back. That's the apt metaphor here. Uh, Ukraine gained its independence. The Soviet empire collapsed. uh, And 30 years later, Putin has decided he wants to re uh, colonize these territories. The Ukrainians are fighting back. and But because of that, it makes it very difficult to think about some kind of negotiated solution until the Russian army, I think, tragically, until the Russian army is stopped on the battlefield. 
There are no givebacks in international relations. Uh, Ambassador McFall, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Still ahead, the plot thickens as federal investigators question Trump attorney Christina Bob about Trump's mishandling of classified documents seized at Mar-a-Lago. We'll be right back with that on The Readout. everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Look, I am not a legal professional, but I have watched enough Law and Order, Reasonable Doubt, and She-Hulk attorney at law to know that it's not a good thing when a lawyer representing a client has to get their own lawyer. It may be worse than that when that lawyer speaks with federal investigators about the case as a potential witness. NBC News has learned that Christina Bob, one of the lawyers representing Donald Trump in the FBI investigation of his mishandling of classified documents, spoke to federal investigators on Friday. The former anchor with the far-right OAN network was the Trump attorney who signed a letter to the DOJ in June certifying that Trump had turned over all classified material in his possession, a claim which has been proven to be false following the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago in August. That search was exactly nine weeks ago, and to this day, the twice-impeached former president has not said why he took thousands of government documents, including some with markings indicating they held the country's most guarded secrets, or what he was planning to do with them. New reporting from the New York Times indicates one potential motive to give him leverage to pressure the government into this sort of weird quid pro quo. The Times writes that late last year, Trump was still determined to show he had been wronged by the FBI investigation into his 2016 campaign ties to Russia and wanted documents that the National Archive wasn't willing to give him that he thought would prove his claims. Trump's idea, he wanted to cut a deal. In exchange for those documents, Mr. Trump told advisors, he would return to the National Archives the boxes of material he had taken to Mar-a-Lago. Mr. Trump's aides never pursued the idea. Joining me now is Jill Weinbanks, former assistant Watergate special prosecutor and co-host of the Sisters-in-Law podcast. Jill, thank you so much. I, I, I can't think of a better person to talk to about this. So I, I first want to get to this idea of a quid pro quo. What we're hearing here is that Trump, still believing that the FBI was unfairly investigating, was like, "Okay, here's my plan. Here's my plan, Jared. Here's my plan, everybody. I'm going to steal stuff that I know isn't mine in the hopes that the government will then give me documents to prove a theory that I had four years as president to find out when I did have access to classified documents. Am I, am I crazy for thinking that that doesn't even make sense even by Trumpian standards? Or was there some logic here where 
maybe the DOJ would have been willing to cut that deal in exchange for getting some of these documents back. You are not crazy. I'm afraid that it's Donald Trump who is. He is definitely delusional in thinking this. First of all, as you noted, if he had such documents, if there were such documents, if they possibly existed, he had four years when he had every right to ask for them and to get them. So my suspicion is they do not exist. So let's take that first. Secondly, you cannot steal something to barter. And it does go back to what happened in Ukraine, where he was trying to say, "Okay, I'll give you what you're legally entitled to, the funding, if you do this terrible thing for me and make up something about Joe Biden. That is not how America is supposed to be doing business. That is illegal on every aspect. So, no, there's nothing there. You have it completely correct. There's nothing wrong with your thinking. And it should be that everybody in America realizes that there are no such documents and that even if there were, he can't trade stolen documents that he has no right to possess. And this goes back a long way. The Presidential Records Act was a result of Richard Nixon trying to, one, take tax tax deductions for having documents and two, trying to leave the White House when he resigned with the tapes. So that's why we have this law to give it to journalists and to historians, to the American people, not to the person who created them as president. So, Jill, here's the other part of this that that I, I think sort of baffles me and a lot of people want to understand. At this point, you have the president who lied. And, and it's very likely that sort of his lawyer, Christina Bob, is like, look, I can only operate based on what my client tells me. But it looks like more and more people are getting nervous about the idea of even working for this guy. Not that I have a tremendous amount of sympathy for a MAGA lawyer who works with Trump. But as a lawyer, are are people working for him putting themselves in jeopardy by representing a client who seems to consistently be, you know, implicating himself and incriminating himself in his own public statements? Because don't you run the risk of being disbarred? Don't you run the risk of some other sanctions from the legal field if you are knowingly representing somebody who even you know is committing crime? Yes, the answer is clear. I mean, look at Rudy Giuliani. It's already happened to him. It's happening to Sidney Powell. It can happen to many others. In addition, your reputation is shot. So who's going to hire you in the future? I'm stunned, for example, that Jim Trustee signed the CNN complaint. That is a frivolous lawsuit. It will be dismissed, I would predict, under 12b-6, which says failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. His reputation will be shot. Who's going to want to hire him? So, yeah, it really makes no sense. I have to say that Christina Bob was careful. She did not say there is absolutely nothing left. Everything's been turned over. She said, based on the information provided to me, that is deliberately misleading. But under a Supreme Court case, deliberately misleading, but literally true, is not perjury. So it's not perjury. On the other hand, by saying what she said, she opens herself up to be questioned. And I assume today's questioning included who told you that information? And even if it's your client, you have to reveal it because of that. If it's another lawyer you're working with, they're in trouble for having said that. Then you go to them and say, how did you get this information? Why are you saying there was nothing there? So 
it really opens the door to really deep diving into questions of those lawyers. They become witnesses against their client. I want to play you some quick sound from uh, former uh, twice impeached President Trump at a rally in Arizona. Get your thoughts on the other side. I had a small number of boxes in storage at Mar-a-Lago guarded by Secret Service. There is no crime. You know, there is no crime. It's not a crime. And they should give me immediately back everything that they've taken from me because it's mine. It's mine. They took it from me in the raid. They broke into my house under the Presidential Record Act. Everything should come back. All should come back. And under the Presidential Record Act, there is no crime. He is literally admitting to crimes. I mean, on the scale of clients I wouldn't want right now, it's like Rudy Giuliani, Brett Favre, Donald Trump. Uh, What's your response as a lawyer if if Donald Trump was your client and saying these kinds of things publicly over and over in front of live studio audiences? I am sure that every lawyer who represents him has said, you cannot talk about any of these things. And they promptly are ignored. And I think it's time for lawyers to get smart. They don't get paid. He cheats them. And the one who did get paid in advance, Kiss got $3 million in advance. He's been sidelined because he got paid. And so he's saying, I'm not doing your dirty deeds. I'm going to stay honest. So he's sidelined. It's right. really absurd that the lawyers keep signing on when they will hurt their reputations and never get another client again. And, 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 and get robbed in the process. Joe Weinbanks, thank you so much for joining us this evening on The Readout. Up next, the Los Angeles City Council president resigns after a recording surfaces of her making some outrageously racist comments. More on that straight ahead on The Readout. Los Angeles Council President Nuri Martinez resigned from her leadership role today after audio leaked of her making racist comments. The LA Times first broke the story of a leaked conversation that took place in October of 2021, literally a year ago this month, from a meeting attended by Martinez, as well as council members Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon, and president of the LA County Federation of Labor, Ron Herrera. All are Latino Democrats. Among the most egregious comments made by the now former city council president included this about her colleague, council member Mike Bonin's two-year-old African-American son. It's an accessory. When we do the MRK parade. Just like when, just like when. when they used to have those statues in the plantations. Yeah, when Nori brings the, her little yard bag or the, the, the Louis Vuitton bag. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like the oddest thing. It's like black and brown on this float. And then there's this, this white guy with this little black kid who's misbehaved. Este niño has no, he's, they're not even, yeah, no, they're not doing the kid is bouncing off the effing walls on the floor, practically tipping it over. There's nothing you can do to control him. They're raising him like a little white kid, which I was like, this kid is a beat down. Like, let me, let me take him around the corner and then I'll bring him back. There's a lot to unpack in there. And believe it or not, it got even worse. Melodia Martinez called the child a Spanish term meaning animal, but she also mocked O'Hawkins and implied that L.A. County's progressive district attorney, George Gasson, shouldn't be supported, saying, quote, F that guy, he's with the blacks. All four politicians have made statements apologizing. We should mention the source of this recording is still unknown. 
And NBC News hasn't determined whether or not it has been edited. Joining me now is Julian Castro, former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, and now an MSNBC political analyst. Uh, Julian, I, I, I very much wanted to talk to you today. I've interviewed you several times about different things, international politics, Latino politics. But today, I want to talk to you about being a mayor. You were the former mayor of San Antonio. And I, I just want you to sort of take us inside in your time, and that was one of the fastest growing cities in America when you were the mayor there, there were a lot of changing demographics in San Antonio. You have African-American population, you have white Latinos, you have uh, you know Latinos who don't necessarily consider themselves white, you have immigrants, all sorts of different kinds of people. Had you ever experienced anything like this where you encountered with city council members or staff members this sort of internalized racism? And, and how did you deal with it if you had any of those experiences? You know, I never encountered anything like quite like this. We did encounter someone on the council who was recorded, I think, by a staff member uh, vocalizing uh, homophobic remarks or comments, talking about the LGBTQ community in a very derisive and uh, homophobic way. Uh, so, you know, we see these kinds of things pop up. What I do know is that you know, when I got elected mayor, especially when it came to vulnerable communities, you absolutely needed to build coalitions in order to be successful and successfully serve uh, those vulnerable communities. And what really struck me about this recording, Jason, is that you have these council members, uh, each of whom represents some vulnerable communities, neighborhoods out there in L.A. themselves, uh, being racist, being homophobic, uh, being anti-Indigenous, putting down other vulnerable people when what they should be doing is trying to build those coalitions because those constituents they're trying to serve, or at least they say they're trying to serve, they're elected to serve, absolutely need them to do that in a power structure that too often times is stacked against all of those groups that they're talking right. about and the ones that they say they represent. That's what makes it particularly sad. And I think uh, disappointing and embarrassing for these council members. Your former colleague, uh, when you were both in Congress, Karen Bass, is currently in the lead against Republicans, suddenly turned Democrat Rick Caruso. She is, has a good chance of becoming Los Angeles's next mayor. Put yourself in her shoes, or if she gave you a call and asked for advice, because look, the city council president has stepped down, but some of these other members have not stepped down yet. If, if you were advising Karen Bass, what would you tell her to do should she become mayor of Los Angeles, knowing that there were individuals on this call who might still be on city council when she takes office early next year? Well, to her credit, Representative Bass is already doing it. Uh, she put out a statement today. She's called for their uh, resignation. But more than that, she's gone beyond that and said, look, uh, tomorrow I'm going to convene a group of Angelinos uh, to figure out how we can all come together and work in the best interest of every community in this city. That is fundamentally what you need to do as a mayor. And that's what people need to hear during a campaign, that you are going to be a mayor for everyone. Uh, the good news is that Karen Bass has a history of working across black and brown lines. She's very well known in the Latino community. Uh, for years, she worked to bridge that sometimes you know tricky divide that can exist there. It's also true that uh, at least two mayors who were trailblazers in their times, uh, Mayor Bradley in 1973 and Mayor Villaraigosa, who was elected in 05, they got elected with a coalition that included blacks and Latinos. So uh, she has a lot of fertile ground to work with here. 
I want to read you a quick statement. This is pulled from a, a great comment in the L.A. Times. Uh, Nuro Martinez rant reveals the worst enemy of Latino political power, ourselves. Quote, casual racism and classism among Latinos is something our community has never really confronted until recently, as a new generation started frank and honest conversations about our anti-blackness and colorism. It's a pathology exaggerated in the United States as we move into new neighborhoods and fight for political power with communities that have held it longer than us and aren't quite ready to give it up. What I loved about this statement is that it talks about the fact that sort of the, the larger democratic dream of the, the black brown AAPI coalition, it's not magically going to happen. It's going to require some conversations. What do you think is, is a positive outcome that could come from the reveal of these tapes as far as that coalition building that needs to happen, not just in cities like Los Angeles, but across Texas, Arizona and places where you have a growing Latinx population? Hopefully it will prompt those serious conversations about how communities can come together um, respectfully and productively to look out for each other and to build a coalition in a way that recognizes that each of these communities is vulnerable, sometimes in the same way, sometimes in different ways. They all bring something to the table. But the common denominator here, Jason, and the reason that I think it is time for these folks to resign is you need people who can do that credibly and effectively. And no matter what is in the heart of, uh, of the folks who are caught on this tape, they can't do that credibly and effectively right now. They can't build those former coalitions. And, and so, uh, you know, it's unfortunate. Former Secretary Castro, thank you so much. I apologize for confusing that you were in Congress. I literally confused you and your brother. Hasn't uh -oh. happened before. I'm very sorry about that. I'll tell my brother you said hi. <laughs> Thanks so much. Up next, democracy in danger as QAnon Secretary of State candidate pledges to steal the 2024 election for Trump. We'll be right back. Moderate Republicans have long been fully transparent about their intention to steal the next election, including the former president in Arizona this past Sunday. In many ways, it's the thing I'm most worried about, because I think you have candidates that can't lose. But there is an expression that is often used, and we saw it in 2020, that the vote counter is oftentimes far more important than the candidate. He was there in support of a MAGA Republican election denier. There's a lot of them, including Secretary of State candidate Mark Fincham, who, as a reminder, tried to decertify the Arizona election results in 2020, attended the Capitol insurrection, and is a self-identified member of the Oath Keepers militia. But there's another battleground state with a danger of democracy on the ballot. Nevada, Trump-endorsed Secretary of State candidate Jim Marchant made this pledge on Saturday. So we have something in common. President Trump and I lost an election in 2020 because of a rigged election. And when I'm Secretary of State of Nevada, we're going to fix it. And when my coalition of Secretary of State candidates around the country get elected, we're going to fix the whole country. And President Trump is going to be president again in 2024. That coalition is his America First slate of candidates to oversee elections, a group that includes Mark Fincham and Trump's pick for Secretary of State in Michigan, Christina Caramo. And it's not just Secretary of State candidates. The MAGA Republicans running for governor in Arizona and Pennsylvania, Carrie Lake and Doug Mastriano, are also aligned with this group. Marcher revealed the existence of his crew at a QAnon-affiliated conference last year. But the really scary part is Jim Marchant has been leading in his race, which has Nevada Democrats sounding the alarm. One warm quote, this could be the last free and fair election in Nevada. So, look, I cannot stress this enough. 
Democracy is literally on the ballot this year. And it's not just those top of the ticket races at stake. With candidates like Mark Fenchin and Jim Marchant on the ballot this November, the 2024 presidential election is also at stake right now in November. That's tonight's readout. Joy returns tomorrow. And before I go, I got to tell you, quick shout out to Rachel Maddow, who launches her new podcast today. The first two episodes of the MSNBC original podcast series, Rachel Maddow Presents Ultra, are now available. Scan the QR code on your screen or check it out wherever you get your podcast. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now. 